One of my favorite parts of working with and learning from Walter Dickey over the years has been the depth and breadth of wisdom that he has in so many different areas, including being a law professor, being a leader in different settings, and also his perspective on broader life matters, on how to be a, a husband, a father, and in so many other areas of life. He's, he's really a source of great wisdom in many areas. So in this second episode, Walter talked about several items that I thought were really interesting. One is this notion that he has of being poised to learn. And it's something I've heard him talk about a lot over the years, but it was a goal that he had for a lot of his law students that they would be poised to learn. So he describes what he means by that here. He also talked about the law and leadership as being a helping profession, that he saw his work as being someone who helps others. And that was a really interesting perspective. Another item that Walter talked about in this segment was creating value as a leader and how he always, in every situation in which he led, he asked himself, how can I create value here? What can I bring to this situation? So again, it was just a true pleasure to visit with Walter and to continue learning from him. And this is the second of our three episodes focusing on Walter Dickey, the great law professor, public leader, and leader in athletics on sport and the growing good. Well, reading, I think, did a, a number of things for me as a, as a boy. Uh, one was it was a place you could go where you could sort of be alone. Um, uh, secondly, it uh, also indicated, because one related to the things one was reading, that there are others who shared your sensibility. Um, it certainly fed my curiosity, my desire to learn. Uh, but it also, a lot of what I read uh, was history about heroes. And then when I was reading uh, fiction, it was Chip Hilton and the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew and that sort of stuff. And in all of the history stuff that I read and in the fiction, um, the hero um, had to overcome obstacles to succeed. Uh, and I think that sort of helped develop in me a sort of sense of idealism about the world um, and about possibilities in the world um, that I think has profoundly affected me throughout my life. Um, and in some ways, um, it led me to think it could be a better world than the world we inhabit. Um, in other ways, it led me to have some illusions about what was possible in the world. But those illusions uh, really compelled me to sort of reach for more than maybe a more mature person would have realized one is, poss is possible, um, and therefore accomplish more than was possible. So uh, reading was both a source of, um, you know, satisfied my curiosity, but it also uh, fed, as I said, this idealism that I think really affected what I sought to do in my life. Do you have a big library of books? Do you keep books? I do, yes. From from wide ranging or a bunch of law books? No, I, I don't have very many law books at all. <laughs> uh, literature? Literature, and, yes. And uh, you keep the hard the hard copies? I, I have a lot of hard copies, although now I'm using my iPad more and more. 
Well, we had an interesting conversation about that because I told you that, you know, over the past, what, five years or so, I've probably gone through more books than I ever in my life, but I haven't touched a single book. Like I've, I digest them via my phone now on Audible or whatever. Is there anything about the act of physically reading a book that you see as um, noteworthy or is it just the content itself? Well, I, you know, I, again, without getting too much into the psychoanalysis analysis, I think that when I read an actual book, um, it probably brings me back to when I was a kid. Mm. Um, and books were really important to me then. Um, and that probably continues to resonate. There's this act of writing on a book or underlining stuff that you can do, like a physical note-taking that you can have that maybe is more difficult with some of the well, new I've technologies. Kept, I've, I've kept a journal for almost my entire adult life. And you and write? I, and I write it by hand. Every Every, every day? day? Yes. Well, what do you write in there? Well, um, most of the time I write about what I'm thinking about. Um, I've been making a greater effort lately to uh, write about what I do um, or what Mary and I do. Um, so if we take a trip, I try to make some notes about the place that we're in and mm -hmm. uh, what sort of impresses me or strikes me um, but a lot of it is about my thoughts what led you to do that uh, well I think I've always wanted to understand both myself and the world and writing provided a way particularly handwriting of trying to explain it to myself that's mm -hmm. one of the things I've thought uh, I, I'm doing is I'm trying to explain to myself what experiences I'm having and what their implications are. So sometimes it's very um, simply saying what you did that day, but then do you find some other entries get deeper, more um, deeper analysis of working your way through problems? Yes, for, for sure. Um, I, I think I may have mentioned to you um, that I had well, I, I had this experience. I, I was with this uh, old friend who I work with in corrections, and we went to do this oral history project in Waupun, and he was quite complimentary of my work with him and my imagination. And then I got a very uh, grateful note from a former student who I'd helped with a couple different things. Um, and I put those two things side by side, and it led me to the realization that I've done my part and that I don't need to um, keep working or, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, that I can, well, I, and one of the things I've always struggled with is I'm not present as much as I should be. I'm thinking about the future, um, considering the implications of things that are going on, and I've been trying to be present more, and those insights led me or helped me to be present more, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. You shared with me a document about outcomes you hoped law students would, would get from their experience in your classes or in law school. I'm stepping back now to, in our last conversation, you had transitioned to your being a law professor, and, and this document was really interesting, and it had a number of things that you hope they would come out of and you framed the document as you wanted them to be poised to learn, your law students to be poised to learn and you laid out some specific um, aspects of that. One of them was um, knowledge of the law but also understanding of the law in action. Can you talk about what that meant? Sure. Um, uh, the um, So I, I really believe and what I was trying to prepare law students to do was to grow for the rest of their professional lives. Um, and that meant that they had to have several different fundamental things. One was knowledge of the law, um, that is the law in the books. But Wisconsin Law School has always been very famous for the fact that we 
tried to teach the law in action, what really goes on in the world. Um, and those are sort of foundational if you're going to grow for the rest of your life. Uh, you obviously need curiosity, but curiosity is fed by learning. Um, and so I, my desire was for the students to both have a structural understanding of law and legal principles, but also to sort of hang on that structure, how the world actually works because there's an interplay between the law on the books and the law as it operates in action. And knowing that is vital. You said that one of the, your own strengths is your, you had a really stru sound structural preparation that would allow you to, to take that to multiple situations that you could have, you, which you did. You went into criminal justice or athletics or all these places. Um, what does that mean? What does it mean to have a sound structural preparation? Well, you know, I, I felt that I got a really good legal education. Um, I had uh, faculty professors who uh, sort of understood what you might think of as the bones of the law. Um, and they uh, emphasized to us a combination of knowledge of the specifics, but also um, what I think of as first principles, um, uh, legal principles that are sort of vital if you're going to move from one area of the law to another. Um, and I realized, I think as my professional life went on, that I had gotten a really sound foundation because I was able to uh, address different situations that perhaps the specifics I wasn't knowledgeable about, but the fundamentals I had, which allowed me to sort of deal with, with what mattered. One thing you highlighted was this orientation that a lot of lawyers end up becoming as problem finders, that is, they they can lay out every reason why something won't work or every problem with the situation. And maybe there's some value in that, but that you wanted to help create problem solvers. And, and I liked the metaphor you used was, we, we want you to be a playwright and not a drama critic. Can you talk about what that means? Sure. So um, one of the, uh, what I would say undesirable qualities a lot of legal education has is it uh, emphasizes uh, analysis by critique. And so you'll read an opinion in the law book and it'll and a concurring opinion and a dissenting opinion. And then what the class amounts to is um, critiquing the majority opinion, what's wrong with it, the concurring opinion, what's wrong with it, dissenting opinion, what's wrong with it. Um, and to my way of thinking, that's the lawyer as, as critic. Um, and what we want is the lawyer as problem solver, figuring out what to do, um, which requires an exchange of information with the client and a dive into their lives and their situations. So, yes, problem solver, not drama critic. But what is playwright? Why, why is that a... Well, so I, playwright to me is creativity, mm -hmm. right? It is, uh, it's, um, I wouldn't say rehearsal. It's, um, it's more an emphasis on the creative process. Mm -hmm. So you ha have certainly had many experiences of that over the years. And you had this one experience where you got involved with criminal justice reform and and had several years of doing that and helping to write the write the law about um, discipline or uh, d different aspects in the Department of Criminal Justice. What, what was that? That was a multi-year process that you got involved with early in your law career. Sure. Uh, so the uh, Department of Corrections had an exemption from the administrative rule requirement that applies to all state agencies. Um, and that 
exemption was removed by the legislature, uh, and then the governor vetoed it, uh, and the veto was overridden. Th that created a certain amount of tension between agencies and the legislature, or between corrections and the legislature, and uh, the head of corrections at the time asked me if I would oversee and run this rulemaking project about all aspects of corrections. And that is everything from cell searches and security visitation uh, to discipline, to programming, to educational rules, and also probation and parole, and also juveniles. So it took us four years, a little more than four years to do this. Um, and we addressed all aspects of uh, the corrections system. Um, and the way we did that was, uh, you know, well, I, my own view was I was the lawyer for corrections and they were the client. And we set up all different committees, a security committee, a disciplinary committee, uh, programmatic committee, an educational committee, visitation, and uh, uh, I worked with all of those committees to talk through what um, the rules should be. Um, and they all had, they all, their starting point was always, well, this is the way we do it. Mm -hmm. And then I would engage them on whether or not that was the best way or there was a better way or what the implications of the way that they were doing it were. And we then uh, drafted up the results of those discussions in a very thick volume. Uh, and uh, it was accepted by the legislature and by the Department of Corrections. Um, one of the things I, I vividly remember, I, just to sort of make the point about why business as usual mm -hmm. uh, isn't necessarily the way we should be going, was on the question of visitation. So um, at that time, visitation was limited to what were called close family members. Um, and uh, that really struck me as not quite right. Uh, and so we talked it through. And then I did a survey of who visited and who didn't visit. Um, and what we found out was this limitation to close family members meant that really only a handful of inmates actually got visitation um, and most did not and that while the visiting rooms may have been busy they were busy with constant visits from the same people mm. to the same inmates and that this actually had a very exclusionary effect particularly on people from the inner cities of mm -hmm. Beloit, Racine, Kenosha, Milwaukee um, where uh, transportation was an issue. Mm. Um, and so when, when the committee saw that visitation wasn't working the way they thought it was, when they saw the sort of facts and figures, um, they qu quickly came around to enlarging visiting. And then when I became the head of corrections, we started running buses up um, from the inner cities to all the institutions to try and make it possible to uh, increase visitation because I think having a connection to somebody who's a family member who cares about you outside is of vital importance to readjustment once one returns. That that little digging deeper that you did by doing the survey, had that just not been done before? It was, just, it was kind of accepted knowledge that this close family only visiting policy was the way to go unquestioned? So, I, you know, I, I think what actually happened was this close family visiting policy was really more ideological than it was mm. factually based. Um, the new commissioner who had come in and brought it with him um, clearly had an attachment to it mm. um, and a belief that it would work in a certain way. But I think what was revealed was it wasn't working the way he thought it was. Mm -hmm. Well, it seems like a great example of this idea of having a, 
a bit of an imagination and seeing things a little bit differently. And I, I'm wondering about the nuts and bolts about how that all worked for you. So you were doing this work in deep for several years, across three or four years of corrections reform, but then you're also a young law professor. How did, did you carry out both of those duties at the same time leading up to you being asked to be head of corrections? Uh, I did. You know, I, um, my mentor, Frank Remington, thought it was really important that I continue to have a law school connection while I did this, that there was sort of a degree of separation from corrections that was probably desirable. So I maintained my office in the law school. In fact, I went to it most days, although I was traveling around to all the institutions sort of a lot of the time. Uh, and uh, I continued to s supervise or direct our clinical program, um, though I was given an exemption from classroom teaching. And then how did that come about that you went from you went from taking the lead in this change, important change in corrections to being asked to lead corrections? So what happened was there was a riot at Wapan on January 31st, 1983. Um, Tony Earle had been in office about two weeks at that time. Um, and one of the rules that we had drafted was the requirement that there be an investigation and that it be carried out with a combination of both corrections people and people from outside corrections in the event of a destructive riot, which this riot had been. Um, I had uh, drafted that rule and I had drafted it in part because of my experience in going out and helping in New Mexico. There was a really terrible riot in New Mexico, 38 inmates were killed. Um, and I went out at the request of the new head of corrections there to try and help him figure out what to do in the aftermath of this riot. And I realized that having an a, a, uh, inquiry into the uh, riot, its causes, that had um, uh, moral authority in the eyes of both the inmates and the, and the public, was a vital quality. And so this rule sort of tried to strike this balance between having corrections people involved because they had obviously day-to-day -day knowledge about a lot of stuff as well as uh, having people from outside. So I was asked to lead this investigation because I went down to talk to the head of social services about um, uh, the rule itself and how it had come about and then she asked me if I would lead this investigation, which I did. And you and you talked, I think it was in relation to that, the riot, and it was this super complicated, highly tumultuous situation. And some of the people involved, you, you mentioned something along the lines of they knew the problem from a distance. Like they, they hadn't been up close and understood things on the ground as well as maybe others had. So... Had your on-the-ground understanding come from what you referred to as going around to facilities through, over those years leading up to it and going out to Santa Fe or other places? Is that, is that where the on-the-ground understanding came from? So uh, I think the on-the-ground understanding came from a couple of different things. One was I had run this clinical program in the law school for years in which we were uh, providing legal services to inmates. And we would interview all new inmates at all the prisons. Um, uh, there were only three reception centers at that time, Wapun, uh, Green Bay, and Tachita. Uh, and so that really involved me in uh, hearing inmates talk about their lives and talk about, in a sense, how they got there. Mm -hmm. um, and it also, allowed me to develop a level of trust with the corrections people that I think was really vital when we undertook the rulemaking project. Secondly then was the rulemaking project which brought me to all the places and uh, all the people and I think while there was suspicion of me as a law professor to begin with, um, we quickly developed a pretty uh, high level of trust uh, in one another, and 
then people started to let their hair down as these things go, and um, we sort of got at what's really going on. That is interesting because in, in a lot of circles, your status as a law professor brings like a credential with you that would make you more more credible, but in, the, in these situations, it was almost something to overcome. Well, so part of uh, the situation I found myself in when I became the head of corrections was uh, the department had a really severe hangover from what was called the Lucy Task Force. The Lucy Task Force was a mid-70s operation that basically wanted to abolish prisons. Um, and they came at their work in ways that were very critical of the people who worked in correctional institutions, for whom I have the enormous respect. Um, and th these were outsiders as critics. And so that led to a certain amount of defensiveness on the part of the people in corrections. And uh, so when I say there was a certain amount of suspicion of me as an outsider, I think it was a sort of rub off from this task force that had been so, so critical of corrections operations. That's, uh, I think a lot of leaders come into situations kind of without deep knowledge of the history that preceded them and that that is such an important factor in any setting that you go in as a leader is understanding that the people with whom you're working have a have a lived history of that place that will affect how they interpret you and how they respond to you yes i mean and that uh, again i think we got past that pretty quickly um because I think they realized I was sincere in my desire to help them. As I said to them often, I'm your lawyer. I'm going to try to help us figure out what we should be doing here. Is some of that your personality or your um, the way you are? Because you don't come across in my interactions with you over the years as a um, you know fancy law professor. You're a guy from you know from the Bronx who finds himself working all different types of environments. You said that you know you've been a lifeguard, you've been a garbage man, you've been every job in between. Is some of that who you are that helps defray some of the distance? I think so. I, I think you know it's interesting. My son uh, was relating to me just the other day. Uh, he had convened a meeting of uh, people who are in the family business world. Uh, the business school apparently has got a family business center and he had convened this meeting. And uh, so they went around the room and what they talked about was their first job. Um, and Ben's first job uh, was detasseling corn. <laughs> um, and we made him ride his bike to the pickup point for the detasseling corn thing and after he had detasseled corn he had to go to Burnstead's in Sauk Prairie to uh, uh, stock shelves. So uh, I, I think for me uh, working at all the things that I did and growing up in the Bronx amongst basically regular people was really important. Though you know just to return to my journal a little bit. So I've been thinking about this um, very issue, and I think one of the other influences um, is my Jesuit education. Um, the Jesuits are really dedicated to making the world a better place. I, I, that's sort of their one of their key missions. And you can't have four years of Jesuits and not have that certainly uh, conveyed to you in ways that are telling. You've used the term, I've heard you use it, being in the helping profession, which I haven't heard a lot of other like law school professors say I'm in the helping profession, so that maybe comes from some of that? I, I You know, I think so. The You know, I don't think people view lawyers as members of a helping profession, uh, but when we did our clinical program in the, in the prisons, um, 
we try to convey to the students that they should regard themselves as members of a helping profession. And they were trying to help this person sitting before them, an inmate, solve their problems in ways that would allow them to enjoy whatever prison has to offer, but most importantly, be able to adjust to life on the outside when they got out. You've referred to leadership as uh, creating value, and so I want to go back to when you you came in as head of corrections. And again, the obvious value you bring is you're a law professor, you understand the law, and you had spent all this time working in those years leading up. But can you talk about that a little more about what do you mean by leaders create value? And then what value did you create? What value did you see yourself as needing to create as head of corrections? Well, um, there are a couple of different things uh, that I thought were really important. Um, one was I, my assessment of the situation was that corrections had sort of lost its way and needed a clear statement of purpose. Um, and I wrote uh, maybe a four or five page piece um, uh, that uh, said that our purpose was going to be to be fair and effective. Um, um, and by that I meant we were going to try to treat people the way they should be treated, both inmates and staff, um, and that we were going to try to be as effective as we could be in trying to make it possible for people to make it in prison and then make it when they got out of prison. And so having a clear sense of purpose and then putting some specifics on that um, was, was I, I think, really important. Um, secondly, so I, I thought sort of having a goal and having it be clear and simple enough to be understood by everybody was really important. Um, there were some personnel issues and changes that needed to be made. Um, and, you know, I had developed a fairly keen sense of what those might be. Um, most of them were in central office um, because central office, in a sense, had gotten too influential in the running of the prisons. Um, the budget was dictating too much. We weren't being as sensible as we should have been. The third area of really important concern was relations with the legislature. Now the administrative rule process was one that had brought me into contact with the legislature sort of constantly because they were really interested in what the corrections rules were going to be. And so I had been communicating with members of the legislature, the key committees, throughout the rulemaking process. And I had a certain amount of credibility with them, which I think was really important. Now in their eyes, the fact that I was an outsider was a real plus. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And because they uh, had a s suspicion, part of this hangover, of you know the corrections people being too inbred and all that sort of stuff. So um, and the other thing I, I think that was really important that I think I did a pretty good job of was communicating um, with staff and, and with inmates. Um, we, uh, I really made a point of getting out and visiting the prisons as much as I possibly could. I communicated in writing as much as I possibly could. Um, and uh, I was really quite open to the press. Um, and in the light of this riot that occurred, um, because there's an inmate death that sort of sparked it, um, and it was a pretty destructive riot, there was a fair amount of press interest in corrections. So I tried to be as open with the press as I could be as a way of communicating not just to the public, to whom we have obvious obligations, but also to staff. Was your ability to walk in these multiple worlds, because you just now referred to the legislature, then prisoners and then people working in central office then you're still here at the law school so you're constantly working in very different worlds is that something that you developed over the years gradually or how did that develop I'm not sure um, you know I uh, so 
we talked a little bit about my having gone to Ghana, um, and you know that was a completely different world, mm -hmm. and you had to figure it out. I mean, mm -hmm. there was just no alternative to figuring it out, and so one of my approaches, and again, I've not really thought a lot about leadership. My approach to almost every situation I've ever been in is assess it, uh -huh. uh, look at it as carefully as you can, and then figure out what to do. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, you know, if you're going to talk to the legislature, you need to know what's on their minds. If mm -hmm. you're going to talk to the staff, you're going to know what's on their minds. Um, and, you know, the public, I think, has got a real misconception about the corrections world. And uh, therefore, if you're talking to the press, you've got to have some sense of who your audience is. Mm -hmm. um, and I, you obviously can't try to deceive people, but at the same time, if you're honest and sincere, that usually comes through. This idea of empathy is to say, you know, what's important to the person across the table from you? And I, I know you've talked about that even as developing lawyers who can understand the person who's incarcerated across the table from them, like what's going through their mind, what's important to them, but it's probably just, just as important in meeting with the legislator and that. I also, I, I wonder about the idea of, uh, you mentioned the Jesuits, they have this notion of detachment, which is, I think it's really interesting, essentially, and I'll probably botch it a little bit, but, you know, analyzing a situation fully, looking at all angles, understanding the different people involved, learning deeply about it, making a decision, and then being good with what happens. Essentially, there's an emotional investment, but also kind of like a, you know, from their perspective, a faith that it's going to happen the way it should kind of thing. So now in the rulemaking, um, one of the things I learned is you can't become too attached to your <laughs> view of what this rule ought to be. Mm. Um, and I think uh, uh, as uh, discussions unfolded, um, I found that you know being too attached to some point of view, some starting point, was not a good uh, was not a good thing. You know, I later learned when I taught my sentencing seminar about some of the cognitive errors that judges make, and one of them is the anchoring effect. That is, your starting point anchors where your imagination mm -hmm. can go, mm -hmm. and that's not, that's an error in thinking that mm -hmm. you should try to avoid. Um, I was gonna come back, though, to a point uh, you made um, about trying to understand the people that you're dealing with. So, one of the things I used to say to the students um, uh, about why the experience that they were going to have as they worked in the prisons was going to have a very telling effect on their lives was that I, I, I would say this. I said, if you are interviewing an inmate at the in the greenhouse at Wapunt, the greenhouse is a segregation building, um, uh, and he's cuffed and you're talking to him through the bars, which is how you're going to be doing it, um, you're going to be able to interview anybody in the world you've ever come across mm. uh, because you're going to have to figure out how to communicate with this person who feels a level of hostility towards you. You're a lawyer after all, and most of the lawyers they've ever dealt with have been responsible or they feel have been responsible for putting them where they are. Um, and it's going to be a very difficult environment in which to do that. Um, and it's probably going to be as hard as it's ever going to get for you. That probably comes back to some of the structural foundation you said that can be applicable and different and that you gain through legal education and just life experience that it can be applicable in corrections, it could be applicable in athletics or in a lot of different areas where you have difficult conversations and you need to figure out the dynamics that are at play in each of them. So we stress to the students that they should view their interview with the inmates as a diagnostic interview. Um, and we really leaned on the medical 
profession here and said because if you go in and have a physical um, the doctor is going to ask you a whole bunch of questions and is going to provide some knowledge and tests and things like that uh, but that the outcome right that is whatever is prescribed for you is going to be the result of this discussion and that both sides have got things to mm -hmm. add to the discussion and the tests are also going to be significant um, and that what the students should be thinking they were doing when they talked to the inmates was giving them a legal physical um, and because it was this dialogue right mm -hmm. that was going to have the result one of the um, unfortunate but understandable um, habits that a lot of the students uh, brought not all but some brought to the interview with the inmates is they just start talking right they were so nervous the students were that they never let the inmate get a word in edgewise and so we try to emphasize to ask questions that draw the person out so that you get a sense of what their situation is what, what's an example of that for I'm trying to think of a, a law student sitting with a, someone in this situation how, well, how would they draw them out so for example um, the inmate uh, as I said is often very suspicious of the law student so if the law student says to the inmate now realize this is a newly arrived inmate um, did you work last year um, the inmate is probably going to look at them and wonder, why are you asking me that mm -hmm. question? And the student should then add, because if you did and you got paid, did you file income tax? Um, and the inmate almost never has filed income tax. And the student then should say, because if you worked and got paid and didn't file income tax, um, you probably didn't make enough to owe any tax, and since tax was probably withheld, um, we may be able to get you a refund if we file. So then the student has got to go, in a sense, get the W-2s mm -hmm. right, <laughs> from the employer, get mm -hmm. the name of the employer, get the W-2s, and then come back and help the inmate fill out the form so they get it refunded. Now the inmate maybe has a little money in their account. It's a starting point of trust building exactly. and understanding. Yeah, exactly. You used the term a little bit ago of moral authority, and I'm coming back again to leadership. And often leadership is equated with positional authority. So a leader is someone who holds a position in an organization. And certainly there are certain roles and responsibilities and accountabilities that come with a role. That So it's important that you have a certain role. But moral authority is perhaps a deeper thing and what do you mean by moral authority as it relates to or is different from positional authority so now I would instead of using the word positional authority I would because of the law stuff I would use the word legal authority mm. right mm -hmm. um, and uh, again if you've ever seen an effective police officer right um, the effective police officer isn't usually standing on their legal authority. They're standing on their interaction with the person that they're having mm -hmm. a discussion with. Um, so while the police officer has got a lot of legal authority, um, as does the prosecutor, as, this, as does the secretary of corrections, um, their effectiveness turns more on what you in this situation is a relational matter um, and the relational matter and to my way of thinking leads to a degree of respect um, both shown by both parties in that interaction um, and that degree of respect um, has to be earned um, and it can be earned over time committee chairs right have legal authority they're the chair of the committee mm -hmm. but if they're going to actually have influence I think they've got to have moral authority they have to have the respect of the people um, that they're trying to work with um, and I think 
as I said, moral authority is earned. It's not, uh, you're not anointed with it. You don't just get it by being head of corrections. You get it from the time in the field. And you've mentioned previously humility and and how that plays out in a lot of this work as well. So, yeah, I, you know, I, I think, um, I can't, I, you know, I, sometimes it sort of amazes me when I see people, um, in positions of authority who lack humility, um, for one thing, a degree of humility is an incredibly powerful thing in our relationship. Um, and in terms of sort of developing moral authority, everybody should be able to see that most value is created through teamwork. Um, and that if you're going to uh, engage in teamwork, then having a level, a level of humility about mm. what your role is is really important mm. Mm. Um, so yeah I would I, I would say um, humility certainly is one of the building blocks for moral authority in my about I think 10 or so years of getting to work with you that's been a recurring theme that I hear you talking about a lot is moral authority in different situations mm-hmm. and how it plays out so differently and, and when people lack it it almost never works well when you have someone coming in hard and heavy without what you would refer to as moral authority, that it's not an effective situation. Yeah, and, and, and it's gained not just because of, um, uh, well, it's gained in part because of what one knows mm. and what one can add to whatever it is one is engaged in. Um, but it's sort of almost always seen for what it is. Yeah. I wanted to wrap up this part of our conversation with a, a slightly more personal aspect of this, which is that you've done all these professional things and have these impacts in so many levels. And today we talked a little bit, just a little bit about the correction stuff and the law stuff. We haven't talked yet about anything related to athletics, but um, throughout all that and doing a lot of your reading, but then just knowing you, I know you've also been very fully, even more fully engaged as a husband, father, community member. You, you're even a school board member and a lot of things. But especially husband, father, grandfather, brother, son, all of those roles. And that's a complicated thing for anyone to think about how you do all those things at one point. But I wonder, uh, I want to ask you about if you've had certain guidelines over the years that, that have helped you figure out how to do those things well, to do both those family roles, but also these professional roles concurrently, do them well? Um, Well, I would say from my parents, um, who were immigrants uh, from Ireland, um, their dedication to my brothers and me was that was their primary goal, was that we would elevate our lives. And I, I think for me uh, and for Mary, you know, the lives of our two children and now our grandchildren are of the first order of importance. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, you know, I, I was... I, going to say one of the few rules we had was I'd be home at six every night. Um, and that was important because as Mary said, when the boys were little, that was the arsenic hour. That was, <laughs> that was when things went south for her mm-hmm. and that's when she needed help the most. Now I might have been bringing one of the kids from daycare or having to pick them up at school or whatever it was. But I think uh, we made almost all of the important decisions we made in our lives with a focus on the welfare of the boys. And have you purposefully kept those aspects of your life, family life and professional life, discreet? Or are there ways you've invited the two together in different ways over the years? Um, You know, I, I think 
you know, I, you mentioned I was on the school board. I, I was on the school board in Sauk Prairie for a couple terms, um, and I got involved in that because I was unhappy with how the principal of my son's school was being treated by the superintendent. You know, I coached the soccer teams for years and uh, did all that sort of stuff. Um, but, I, you know, I, again, I, I think, you know, having a successful quote-unquote father um, and mother, um, th that's not something boys, uh, our kids needed to have hung around their neck, you mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think they realized, you know, the level of accomplishment we both achieved. But I think having a degree of separation is also really important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I read that a lot about coaches have to make these decisions. I just finished this book about, a new book about Coach K, and there's a lot in there, but one thing he did was really invited his wife into the fray, you know, at all aspects of the program. And probably it's different for a coach who's, it's such a all-encompassing profession that can't be nine to five and inherently has to be around the clock. And so he had to find ways to bring his wife in as you know helping with recruits or getting attached almost as like the mom of the program so that's probably something that's unique to that field that probably all coaches need to na navigate more than say a professor or administrator of a program well i think for me what was most important um and was probably the degree of integration was my talking things over with mary virtually every mm -hmm. night um that that uh, her counsel about stuff and her reactions and her willingness to listen mm -hmm. were, was vital to whatever we ended up doing.